There are two global patterns going on right now, population aging and climate change. So I started talking to climate scientists and I pitched this idea that older adults are not only potential victims of climate change, but potential leaders of climate action. Home with Growing Older is a nonprofit organization which believes in peer learning and creating discussions which bring the lens of aging to a variety of topics. At Home with Growing Older is proud to be your host of At Home on Air, a bi-weekly radio hour offering connection, community, and knowledge to our participants remotely. Now, we invite you to listen and learn from this live recorded episode of At Home on Air. Welcome to another episode of At Home on Air, conversations that shape the experiences of later life. The question is really, what if we all became active climate changers and turned our anxiety about climate change into climate action? I am Susie Stadler, an architect and the executive director of At Home with Growing Older, the producer of this program. I have the pleasure of talking with Mick Smyer, an expert in the field of aging, emeritus professor in psychology at Bucknell, and the founder and CEO of Growing Greener. Growing Greener started as Graying Green with the goal to tap into the capacity of older adults to fight climate change. Since then, Growing Greener evolved with the goal to motivate people of all ages to become more active on climate change issues. I would like to encourage others to follow the example of our loyal season sponsors, Rhoda Goldman Plaza and the Walnut Foundation. 80% of our work is done by volunteers. And just imagine what we could do with a little bit more support. We also encourage you to subscribe to our podcast on your preferred platform and share it. From anxiety to action, a conversation about gerontology, climate change and human-centered design, you will soon find out how these three are connected. Many important conversations do not happen because of anxiety. Our last conversation with the wonderful Katie Butler was about the anxiety of many older adults and about their own death and creating a vision for it. So let's talk about the anxiety about climate change and how we similarly avoid this conversation. Mick Smyer has researched ways to get us unstuck and to tap into the capacity of all people to take action. Welcome, Mick, to this conversation. Thank you so much for your work, and thank you so much for leading us in this conversation. So I would like to start with this question, how does gerontology, psychology, and climate change fit together to meld into your activism on climate change? Well, first, thanks for having me, Susie. And that's a great question. You know, I asked myself that question at the beginning of my climate journey. About six or seven years ago, I knew I was in a career transition trying to figure out what would be the next phase of life for me. And I thought to myself, well, I want to work on something big, something important. What's important? Climate change is important. But what do I bring to that? I'm a psychologist. I'm a gerontologist. I study the psychology of aging. And then it struck me, well, wait a minute. There are two global patterns going on right now, population aging, the world's population is getting older, and climate change. 
So I naively thought, well, I'll just talk to the hundreds of people who are looking at that interesting intersection and I'll join their efforts. After I talked to all six of the people working at that intersection, I realized, wait a minute, not a lot of people are looking at this. So I started talking to climate scientists. That was my first audience. And I pitched this idea that older adults are not only potential victims of climate change, but potential leaders of climate action. And there I was talking to a room full of climate scientists. I gave them my pitch and I got a one word answer. You know what that word was? Huh. And I thought to myself, oh, this isn't going well. And then I realized, well, wait a minute, they weren't throwing me out. They weren't poking holes in my argument. So maybe this would go okay. A couple of weeks later, I talked to another group of scientists. I gave them my pitch and I got a one word answer. Huh. And it dawned on me that, huh, is science speak for that's not crazy. I just never thought of it. And that's the point. The climate group never thought about older adults as a resource. But I have to say, when I talked to gerontologists at the beginning of this project, I also got that one word answer, huh? because gerontologists had never thought about climate change. So I found myself an aging whisperer to climate groups and a climate whisperer to aging groups. And that was the launch of Graying Green, which is now, as you said, growing greener. What a fascinating way to get to this activism. And also, I'm glad you interpreted in the right way. <laughs> it took me a while. At first, I thought, oh, this is not going well at all. So why is this work even necessary? Why is it so difficult to motivate people to become climate change activists or at least become active in climate change issues? What have you found in your work in psychology and in your research about that? Well, Susie, I think we have what I call a climate silence or a climate avoidance habit. And it runs something like this. Climate change, it's such a big problem. What can one person do? It makes me anxious to even think about it. I'm just not going to think or talk about it. And why do I say we do that? Because the data are pretty clear. We know in the United States, for example, that 72% or more know that global warming is happening. But only 35% talk even occasionally with family members and friends about it. So we know something's going on, but we don't know what to do about it. And so what we do is avoid the topic. So it struck me that psychologists know a lot about habit formation and about breaking habits. We can use that knowledge to break the climate silence or climate avoidance habit. So I think we have a behavioral problem and behavioral science can really help us to deal with that. I read some of your research and you talked about legacy was one of the motivators and biophilia. Can you say a little bit more of what's close to the heart of people? Sure. I spent time in the design school out at Stanford as I launched this project. And there I learned to think back on what are the key design elements or to the design principles that are going to structure your work. I looked at some work from the National Academies of Sciences. I started a very strange place. It was designed by analogy. I said, well, if I want to talk to older adults about climate change, how do I do that? Well, what do we know about talking to other age groups? And the National Academy of Sciences said, if you want to talk with children about climate change, make it social, short, and positive. Social by focusing on either people or places that they care about. Short 
by focusing on a human scale time frame. Don't talk about our carbon footprint 10,000 years from now. In our case, we use 40 to 50 years as a human scale time frame. And positive, make sure you leave people with a clear sense of what they can do, what psychologists would call self-efficacy. So social short and positive was really where we started. Now I started by focusing on places. Let me give you an example. In our work, we have about a 30 to 40 minute workshop that we carry out or train other people to carry out in their groups and circles of influence. And the workshop starts with four simple requests. And just type your answer to the next two requests, if you will. So the first request, very simple, a little thought experiment. Picture a place, any place in the world that has special meaning to you that you are attached to. For example, when I think of this question, I was born and raised in New Orleans. I think of New Orleans as a place that I have special attachment to. So picture a place, any place in the world that you have special attachment to. What place comes to mind for you? Is there a place in the world that you are attached to? And then Susie, if you could look at some of the responses and just give us some examples. Point Reyes, the Flint Hills, Burdett Park in Indiana. Camel by the Sea, Inverness, Bay of Fires, Tasmania. Okay. I couldn't have necessarily predicted the Flint Hills and Tasmania, but I could have predicted that everybody would have a place that they care about. I've done this with thousands of people of all ages in the United States, in Australia, in the Netherlands, in Ireland, in Austria. Everybody's got a place they care about. So that's the social part. Now, the second request we make is picture that place affected by extreme weather or climate change. Picture the place you care about affected by extreme weather or climate change. For example, when I think about New Orleans, my special place, I immediately think of floods and hurricanes because Hurricane Katrina and all the damage and floods that we've had since then. So when you think of your special place, what's the threat from extreme weather or climate change that you think of? Tsunami, drought, level rise. Floods, wildfires, somebody put tornadoes, whatever it is. The topic tonight is anxiety, so we're getting there pretty quickly. But the point is, the point is that everybody knows what the threat is to the place they care about. Now notice, this is how we start our workshop. We didn't say, is global warming happening? We didn't say, is it human cause? No, we started with a social connection, a place you care about. And we asked two more questions. One is, picture that place, how you'd like it to look in 40 to 50 years. Not what you think it'll look like, but your aspiration for that place. And when we ask people that question, many people say, I'd like it to look just like it looks now. Stop whatever's changing. And I used to say older people would say what it used to look like 10, 20, 30 years ago. I can tell you what Bayou St. John looked like in 1960. I paddled it. But increasingly, over the last few years, in talking with and working with college students and high school students, I've had those students say to me, that special place, I'd like it to look like what it looked like 10 years ago, which for me is chilling. Because what that says is that these relatively young people 
in their relatively short lives have seen the impacts of climate change and extreme weather events. So that's the third question. The fourth question is picture something you can do now to work towards that vision that you have 40 to 50 years from now. When we ask that question, somewhere between 50 to 80% of the people, depending upon the group, are stumped by that question. What can I do? Now, as a psychologist, if I've just left 50 to 80% of the audience anxious and depressed, that is great for business, but not good for climate action. And that's why we developed the second part of the workshop, which leaves people with a very clear next step, something positive they can do. So social, short, and positive are the design elements. We've done a study evaluating the impacts of having people connect to place and having people, on the other hand, connect to a sense of legacy. It turns out, if you ask people, how do you want to be remembered? Not about climate, but just in general. What do you want your legacy to be? How do you want to be remembered? That leads people to be more positive towards climate concerns and towards taking climate action. And our study found that our place-based approach with the four questions I just laid out for you and that legacy approach are both significant factors in leading people to change climate attitudes and behavior. And the key is really bringing the climate issues down to a personal size that allows us to start to think about them. As I said, I'm from New Orleans. And in fact, that's how I first got into the climate work. I really woke up to the climate issues and extreme weather issues in 2005. I was a latecomer, but when Hurricane Katrina hit my hometown, although I wasn't living there at the time, watching my hometown flood and the death and destruction that followed was heartbreaking. So that was my wake-up moment. And then my own climate journey accelerated six years ago when my twin grandsons were born and then their little brother Rowan and their cousin Teddy, the best looking grandkids in the world. So now it's not theoretical. It's very real for me because I can ask the question, what will the world be like when they're my age in 65 short years? What's the kind of world that we're leaving? So that was my motivation in getting started. Yes, because climate change activism is building up on all different levels. And the wonderful thing is that your efforts are really on an individual level. Everybody can contribute. So you're sort of getting us unstuck from paralysis. Right. And what we find is that once individuals start to get unstuck, once they break that climate silence or climate avoidance habit, then particularly when we do these workshops in groups, whether it's a class or a church group or a synagogue, whatever it is, the group very quickly asks, well, what can we do together? Not only what can I do individually, but what can we do together? And those small individual steps then often lead to larger group activities and bigger outcomes. So how do you reach as many people as possible? The old question, how do you scale this? That's a question I've asked myself a lot. And part of what we do is just what we're doing tonight. Talk to various audiences in various circles of influence. But we also partner with other organizations. Let me give an example. There's a group called EnergyWise in Louisiana. And it's a nonprofit that has a motivation to reach out to schools, particularly middle schools and high schools 
to educate students about sustainability. Well, we partnered with them and I trained their staff. It takes about an hour to train folks to use our materials. And now they use our materials in high schools, middle schools, and increasingly with grade school groups like Brownie Troops and the like. Before the pandemic, we were doing in-person workshops. And we start with those four questions, but then we move to a deck of climate cards, about 30 climate activities that individuals can undertake. We ask people to sort those cards into three piles, things I already do, things I could do, and no way, things I either cannot or will not do. When the pandemic hit, nobody was getting together. Nobody wanted to have cards that they were sharing. So we moved into an online environment, and now we have all of our tools online. And it turns out that's very helpful for schools right now who are daily trying to figure out, are we virtual? Are we in-person? Are we hybrid? So EnergyWise has been using our materials in 10 schools in Louisiana. So that's the kind of thing where we partner, we train our partners how to use the materials, and then they actually do the outreach in their circles of influence. Yes, schools are a fantastic way to go, I would imagine, because, you know, kids bring the conversation home. That's right. And it turns out there's some interesting research that kids are among the most effective climate communicators with their parents. Dr. Danielle Lawson at Penn State has done this research. She did it as a grad student and postdoc at North Carolina State. And it turns out kids are very effective in changing parental attitudes and behavior, particularly daughters with conservative fathers. That's a very interesting detail. Yeah, it's a great finding. We're doing some research on the impact of our high school version on high school students' behavior and attitude. With Danielle Desmond Tutu, in one of his speeches, said that climate change is the biggest human rights issue we have. So it really is amazing that you're trying to reach all sectors of our population, because there's also the question which often comes up, who can afford to worry about climate change? Because there's not just climate change anxiety, there's income anxiety, pandemic anxiety, work anxiety. So, you know, who can sort of afford to worry about climate change? And I wonder if there are studies or research how climate change worry is distributed among the U.S. population. I don't know if this exists. Well, actually, it does exist. There's some really interesting data from the Yale Program on Climate Change Communication. They're really the best public opinion polling group on climate change communication. They have done a series of studies over the last decade or more looking at public opinion polling. And what they find is a very interesting pattern that 72%, as I said earlier, of Americans say, yes, global warming is happening. 62% say they're very worried or concerned about it. Now, there have been other studies, particularly out of Great Britain recently, looking at younger generations in particular. By the way, the Yale data suggests that there are no significant generational differences in the level of concern or worry. But recently, a number of social scientists have focused on young adults in particular and their level of climate anxiety, which is significant. There was a study at the University of Bath that suggested that 60% of young adults report being anxious or depressed about climate issues. And 75% felt that the future is frightening for them. And in part, that's reality-based because they have been paying attention to the science about what will happen if we don't change the patterns that we see now. 
And then a recent study published in Science found that today's six-year-olds, and by the way, my twin grandsons are six, today's six-year-olds will experience at least three times as many climate disasters as their grandparents, if things don't change. So there's real good reason for people to be anxious about it. But at the same time, we know from psychology that there are ways to deal with that anxiety. And part of our workshop helps people do that by showing them that A, they're already doing some things that have an impact and B, there are more things that they can do. What psychologists call self-efficacy and the importance of that in encountering a major problem like this. Yes, and you can buy the cards online on Growing Greener. Yes, they can. Yeah, operators are standing by. <laughs> <laughs> our materials are available and there's also a contact form on our website where if you're interested in our workshops and being trained in how to run the workshop and use the materials, we'd be glad to talk to you about that. Thank you. So you were talking about, you know, the occurrence of climate change catastrophe in the future of the lives of six-year-olds, but they're actually already happening now. I'm especially thinking of people with limited income and older adults who are really vulnerable to the rapidly changing climate. Last summer, for instance, the heat waves in Oregon and also the fires in California. I'm always stunned why, you know, this is not becoming the number one issue because it still doesn't seem the number one issue given the fact that people are already affected in a real, real way. It's a challenge, Susie, in part because of the nature of the climate change problem itself. Two quick examples. I was teaching a class of first-year college students, and not surprisingly, we were doing a unit on climate change using my climate cards, taking them through that exercise. And we got a spirited debate because some of the students were skeptical about whether climate change was really that big a deal and is it really happening? And a student in the class who's from Florida said, wait a minute, it's already here. It's not a future thing. You come to Florida, I'll show you climate change already. Next year, same conversation, only it was a student from California who said, you come to California, I'll show you wildfires and drought. It's already here. So the problem is that climate change and its impacts are not evenly distributed. That's one problem. The second problem is that thinking about climate change itself is a challenging task for humans. Because think about it, we're being asked to think across time, space, and maybe generations, right? So COVID is one thing. COVID is immediate. We can see the impacts. It's a hard problem to think about, but I bet everybody knows at least somebody who either has or has had COVID. Very immediate. But climate change, you don't see the immediacy unless you are experiencing the drought or the fires. And you certainly don't see the global impact and the differences between the North and South, for example. So really in climate change, we're being asked to do a very hard cognitive task, which is to think across time and space, what psychologists call construal trying to construe your present and think about a different future time. That's why we try to boil it down to a 40 to 50 year time frame to sort of make it more manageable for people. Yeah, I feel like it's a little bit similar to aging. Although we all, older adults, we always have a hard time imagining ourselves as older adults with maybe some functional limitations or frailty. Even 
for us individuals that's difficult. So just thinking of a societal level in terms of climate change, I can see that the challenge is even bigger. There is an analogy too, that is the experience of aging is definitely different depending upon the zip code in which you live or were raised. People who do not have a lot of assets can also be part of the climate solution and can also think about climate issues. Let me give you one quick example. We're doing some work now with a school in Shreveport, Louisiana. It's an under-resourced school, and we've been working with the fifth grade science teachers, and they decided that they were going to make the fifth graders in that school the climate ambassadors. Fifth grade in elementary is like seniors in college, right? They are the king of the heap. So the fifth graders are going to be the climate ambassadors for the rest of the school. We train the teachers in our materials. They took the students through the climate card exercise. And at the end of that, the teachers who were terrific and creative said to the group, okay, now what can we do as a class in addition to your individual goals? Each table came up with what they wanted to do, and then they had to pitch it to the class, and then the class voted. Well, they have uniforms at their school. Coming out of that conversation, the fifth graders developed a uniform recycling program so that clothes that you've outgrown can be passed on to others and reused in the community. One of our climate cards is reuse and recycle. That got them thinking, well, what can we reuse? We can reuse these uniforms because let's face it, when we're sixth graders in middle school, we're not going to be wearing the grade school uniforms. But it got them thinking, what can I do even with limited resources? And I think that's really important because individual actions are not going to solve our climate issues, but collective action will. And, and the more we ask people, what might it look like if we act together, the sooner we'll get to some collective action and solutions. Yeah, that's really empowering. Maybe senior centers can become, you know, collective climate activists and climate ambassadors. That's right. I'm doing some work now with the Villages program, not the Villages in Florida, but the Village idea, like there's a waterfront village in Washington, D.C. There's another one in St. Louis that we've been working with. These are older adults living in the community who've come together to say, what can we do to help each other? But also now, how can we focus on climate challenges in our community? For example, the group in Washington, group of senior citizens, had me do a joint program with a charter high school in Washington, a public high school, because they have been reaching out in an intergenerational way to try to build deeper ties in their community. And so we did a climate workshop with a group of students from the high school with a group of older adults from the Waterfront Village program. So that's already happening. It's a great fit. Are there any books which can further motivate us after this conversation to become active or to get more information books you recommend? One book that I would very much recommend is by Catherine Hayhoe. She is a climate scientist at Texas Tech and also with the Natural Resources Defense Council. She's just released a book called Saving Us, a climate scientist's case for hope and healing in a divided world. It's a very good book. It's very realistic about the challenges that we face, but also very much giving us solutions that we can use in our everyday lives. If you just type saving us, you'll find that book. Catherine Hayhoe, H-A-Y-H-O-E, Catherine with a K. She is among the best climate communicators in our country. Thank you. So let's go to audience questions. You are listening to At Home On Air 
We are now switching to questions by participating audience members in this recorded live episode. If you want a chance to ask your question, visit us at athomewithgrowingolder.org and register for the next live episode. Margaret Birch said, I'm interested in whether individual actions doing more recycling or participating in a cleanup has the same impact on anxiety as working in a movement or bigger organization to change policies. Do people need to see a significant impact or is it simply being active that helps reduce anxiety? Well, that's a good question. I think the, the simple answer is starting to be active will lead to the reduction in anxiety. In our work, what we do is we show people the impact of individual actions by showing them the carbon impact on each of the climate cards. So at the end of our workshop, we ask people to pick one thing from their could-do pile of things they said, yeah, I, I could do that. We ask them to pick one thing and move it from could-do to will-do. And usually we help them pick that by focusing on what we call the big easy. No, it's not New Orleans. It's a combination of which of the things in your could-do pile has the biggest impact and the greatest ease. You know you're going to do it. Don't pick, I'm never going to fly again. Pick something that you think you can do. But there's a premise in the question that I want to go back to, which is that it's not an either or individual action or collective action, because our experience is that when we have people gather together, even on Zoom, in naturally occurring groups, whether it's the DC Waterfront Village or a church group or a class, they inevitably very quickly ask the question, what can we do together? And so it's not only individual self-efficacy, but collective self-efficacy that begins to really have an impact. Let me give you one quick example. I trained some folks at a church on the North Shore outside of Boston. The uh, parishioner, his name is Gordon Angel, ran the workshop, and he was pretty depressed afterwards. He said, I don't think this had much of an impact. And I followed up with him six months later. He said, well, you know, we're having conversations, but I, I don't know. We changed the light bulbs, the LED, but I don't know. A year later, he sent me an email with a picture of the church with solar panels. He said, we've just turned on the solar panels. And the solar installer was amazed at how quickly the church agreed to this project. He said, why did it happen so quickly? And Gordon said, well, you know, we had this little workshop and we had 30 people there. And we realized there was a level of concern in the congregation. And one thing led to another. And now that church not only is saving money, decreasing their carbon impact, but also serving as a reminder to their New England community of what sustainability looks like and what we're called to do in their religious tradition. And it all started with individual action. That's fantastic. So I would like to read Donna's comment. She says, what if I already conserve water and do everything I can? How do I reduce my anxiety about drought when we haven't had rain for three weeks? <laughs> well, there's reality, right? I mean, I'm from New Orleans. I'm very clear New Orleans is at risk for floods, just as Donna's area is at risk for drought. One way to reduce your anxiety, though, is to ask yourself, and perhaps with a group, what can we do about it? How can we make our community more climate resilient? I live in a little town called Lewisburg, Pennsylvania, along the Susquehanna River. And Lewisburg Borough has a climate advisory task force trying to help the town come up with a climate resilience program for the next 30 years. How do we make Lewisburg, which floods regularly, more resilient? Okay, I could move out of the floodplain. That would be good. We all bring assets and, and skills to the table. 
one thing I can do is say, I'm going to be part of that Lewisburg task force. So I, I guess I would urge Donna to reach out to others in her community who are sharing the concern because she's not the only one worried about the drought and ask the collective question. Imagine that we are drought resistant or drought resilient as a community. What might that look like? If we begin to ask that question collectively, who knows what answers will emerge, not from an individual, but from the group. Instead of thinking creatively as a community about this. We're doing some work with a group called Strategic Doing, a guy named Ed Morrison, who's been using this approach, strategic doing, for about 35 years, not on climate, but on fuzzy boundary problems, complicated problems. But he hadn't worked on climate till I reached out to him and I said, hey, you know, maybe we could use your approach with groups like uh, city council or different groups in a community. And that's what we're doing. We're trying that out this year, asking that kind of question for groups. So I'm going to Bill Haskey, who asked about the value of individual action, what I can do versus collective action. Thank you for letting me speak. I'm a member of San Francisco Village. We had heard a presentation by Bill McKibben, a visionary and activist, and it was amazing. It was so powerful that I have recommended to our executive director at San Francisco Village, and I'm going to be talking to our board about having a town hall in San Francisco Village. But I think the question of what can I do is so based in the myth of rugged individualism. I know there's things that I can do as an individual. I can get an electric car or I can put solar panels on my roof. But the question, what can we do, which is a very different question, still requires people to get involved in a sustained way. And I'm grappling with the question of how, when I facilitate this town hall among San Francisco Village members, how can I get them interested to get beyond the what can I do to the what can we do and to do it in a sustained way? How do I get people motivated for a sustained effort so that we can have a group of people in San Francisco Village or in villages around the country older adults working with younger adults involved in climate action. How do I get that sustained involvement? Well, you you packed a lot in there, Bill. Thank you for the question. In fact, Bill McKibben and I had a conversation a couple of weeks ago about Third Act, because he and I both obviously see older adults as a talent pool, as a real resource in the climate issues that we face. But he and I go at it differently. And we agree that we go at it differently. But our two approaches mesh together. I'm trying to reach what I call the worried middle. We know that there are about 50% of Americans who know something's going on, but don't know what to do about it. Bill is great at reaching the third who are what the Yale program calls alarmed about climate change, the most concerned and most active. But I think my talent is in reaching that worried middle. Because if we leave half of older adults behind, we're not going to get the scale of collective action that we need. So I think we need both, both Bill's approach and our approach. Now, the question you ask is, how do you motivate a group to stay with it for the long haul, right? The thing that I would suggest, there's a book, I apologize, but I'm an academic, so I'll I'll give you a book. But there's also a website that goes with it called Strategic Doing. And the reason I suggest that is strategic doing is all about how do you get collective action and move people in a way that gives them feedback so that they can experiment, try something, 
learn from that experiment and keep moving in the direction that they want to move in. The way they do that is four simple questions. What could we do? What should we do? What will we do? And then when are we going to get back together? They're simple questions, but asking what could we do as a group? You brainstorm. And then, well, what should we do? Given all that range of brainstorming ideas. And then, well, of those shoulds, what will we do? Which one are we going to pick as our first experiment? And by the way, Ed Morrison and his colleagues say, use the big easy as your criteria. And then, well, when are we going to check back with each other? For example, I'm working with the school in Shreveport. We check in every couple of weeks with the teachers. 15-minute check-in call, because believe me, that's the most teachers can give us. But the discipline of checking in is part of keeping the motivation going. Yeah, checking in is a really important aspect because it holds us accountable as a group. But also part of the discipline of strategic doing is asking people for small but important contributions. It could be, I'm going to make one phone call to the city manager, whatever it is. I'm working with a college right now using the strategic doing discipline. And uh, the students said, well, I'm going to find out what courses are already being offered in sustainability. And I'll do that within the next two weeks. So it's not, I'm going to solve the world's problems. No, I'm going to take a next step that's going to get our group to make some progress. When people buy the cards, I would imagine that there is this sort of opportunity to connect people you know, across their local boundaries. Like for instance, I could be connected with somebody in India who bought your cards. We have some case studies that give you examples of the kinds of organizations we've worked with on the website. And then I'm always happy to make connections for people. For example, you know, if the San Francisco Village wanted to talk to the folks in St. Louis after we do our workshop, I'm glad to make that connection for you, that sort of thing. Particularly now with the online version of the materials, We are also working with organizations if there are special emphases that they want to have in the climate cards. An example, we're working with a university in the Netherlands, and we have developed a Dutch deck for them because, frankly, the United States and the Netherlands are different and the students are different. So we have a Dutch deck now that they're using with their first year students as part of the orientation to get students thinking about sustainability on their way into the university. So we can do that kind of tailoring and co-designing with an organization. And we find that very useful. Yes. And I would love to find a way to really connect globally with people about climate change and sort of have this layer of a global work group, because I feel like we can learn so much from each other and from the conditions in other countries, maybe something in the future. Susie, my colleague and friend, Eleanor Lurie, said, I don't think making people feel guilty is an effective motivator. And I totally agree with you, Eleanor. That's not what we do. We flip that. We, in fact, start by having people take a look at what they already do, what they're already doing. And in that exercise, that part of the workshop, we help people pick out What are the high impact actions that they're already taking? And there's a good reason for that because we know that that helps their self-efficacy. So no, I think guilt and shame absolutely won't work. And if you read Catherine Hayhoe's book, she covers that very clearly with some of the social science research. I totally agree with that. So I hope I'm not giving the impression we're trying to shame people and guilt people because that's not what we're trying to do. We basically make the argument that in order to get people unstuck, we have to help them see that 
what's going to get them unstuck is taking a next step. And when I was developing these materials at the design school at Stanford, I had a really hard time with the folks there because they said, well, what step? And I said, it doesn't matter. Whatever the next step is for that person, it's going to be an individualized choice. And they really couldn't quite get that at first. But our experience, again, with doing this with thousands of people is people don't leave guilty. People leave excited and talking about the climate issues and what they can do collectively. But you're really right, Eleanor, guilt is not the way to go. I would imagine that for some people, next step is also just realizing what they already do. Well, if that's all we did, then I don't think that would be enough. But what we find is that getting people to commit to one next step, we have a whole discipline that draws on psychology and behavioral economics. Let me give you a quick example. Let's say if you said, okay, my next step is I'm going to wash my clothes in cold water, save energy that way. And we would ask you, well, who are you going to tell about it? Because we know just telling one other person increases the odds that you'll do it. We'd ask, what's your time frame? When are you going to start doing this? And then we would ask you to picture a person or an organization whose mission, values, and goals you do not agree with, you don't agree with, and write down how much money you will give to that person or organization if you don't carry out what you just said you would do on the timetable you said was good for you. So usually there's a beat and then people laugh nervously. What I'm trying to convey is there's a kind of a spirit in the workshop where people say, okay, you got me. I've just told you what's going to motivate me. And by the way, this works across the aisles. It's nonpartisan. Some people say they'll give money to the Democrats if they don't carry out their climate action. Some people say they'll give money to the Republicans if they don't carry out their action. <laughs> and the point is just getting people unstuck to take a next step allows them to ask the what can we do together question because we've broken the climate silence or climate avoidance habit. Yes. So Adrian Borcher says, for personal measurement, what do you think of a motivation? What do you think about a phone app, like a Fitbit, that measures how much pollution or CO2 a person has caused? Well, it's interesting. I was working with a group of students, and I floated that idea to them a couple of years ago. And it could be generational. But the students said, nobody's going to download an app to do that. They might go to a website to check in every now and then. Now, a lot of websites will give you some sense of what your carbon impact is. I was attracted to the app a few years ago, but the students convinced me nobody from their generation would download an app to do that. So that's one thing. Bill at McKimmon and I talked about this. One of the dangers of focusing on individual action and individual carbon footprint is that we might leave the impression that individuals are really going to be the solution or individuals are what got us into this. But in fact, we know that it's much bigger than that. And that whether I drive a hybrid or not, or whether I dry my clothes in a dryer or not, even collectively, that's not going to solve the problem. But by getting people to reflect, we'll get them to break that habit. I also want to read what Pat Schwinn said. My church, Montclair Presbyterian in Oakland, approved a climate call to action and is working to help people learn about the issue and possible actions and tracking progress on actions such as a plant-focused diet, transportation choices, and political advocacy. We are developing metrics for measuring progress and are tracking progress on a tree on a very visible wall. That's great to hear. My friend Jim Antal with the United Church of Christ, the Congregationalists, developed their national call to action. 
And really, Jim has been working with a lot of people to try to help people in a variety of religious traditions see the extent to which stewardship of creation is consistent with a variety of religious teachings. And what I like about the idea of tracking the metrics on a tree and very visible is that it's saying collectively, what are we doing? And it's, again, getting beyond mm-hmm. the eye and saying, what can we do? And pretty quickly, you'll ask not only what can our church do, but what can we do as a community or in the church congregation more broadly across the, the country? So we're coming to the end. Thank you so much, Mick. I think it's very encouraging to see this action cells from churches to schools to the villages springing up and your work is contributing tremendously to move this forward. What a great personal third act for you. Congratulations. And we're going to keep an eye on what's happening with growing greener over the next couple of years. Well, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. And I also appreciate everybody's input, questions, and thoughts. So thank you again, Mick, for being so generous and eloquent on climate change. And thank you, everybody. Thank you, Susie. This episode of At Home On Air was produced by the At Home With Growing Older team. We could not host these conversations without the generosity of our marvelous and passionate guests and hosts. Thank you for sharing your personal and professional insights. Thank you to our live audience for your thoughtful contributions. To subscribe to this podcast and for more information, visit us at athomewithgrowingolder.org. Thank you to our sponsors, Rhoda Goldman Plaza, the jewel of San Francisco's assisted living and memory care communities, and the Walnut Foundation, a San Francisco family foundation. We would also like to thank, for their encouragement and inspiration, Encore.org, which works to bridge the intergenerational divide, and the Op-Ed Project, whose mission is to change who writes history. At Home with Growing Older strives to educate, inspire, and connect people across generations and disciplines to re-envision and improve the experiences of later life. Don't forget to subscribe and tune in for the next episode.